Uh, well, you'll have, uh, if you have your Bibles open to Romans 8, uh, you'll be helped. My goal this morning, as I prayed just a moment ago, is that all of you uh, would find refreshment uh, this morning. I'm guessing today, those of you who are Christians and non-Christians, you're coming from a lot of different places. You've had a lot of different kinds of weeks. Some of you have had more or less good weeks. Some of you more or less bad weeks. And uh, I want refreshment to happen this morning. For those of you who do not know Jesus, I want you to be refreshed in the gospel for the very first time. I want you to come to know the Lord Jesus. And for those of you who are Christians, of course, we all need refreshment, don't we? Cont- continually, constantly. We need to be refreshed by uh, reminding ourselves of the truth of the gospel uh, and particularly the certainty that we, in fact, are forgiven of our sins, the certainty or the assurance that, in fact, there is no condemnation that awaits us now or ever. So I want to start this morning by uh, telling you a story. I'm not a good storyteller, so this is a real risk that I'm taking, but I'll try. Uh, Some years back, I went to Turkey uh, on a short-term mission trip, and uh, we met up with a a missionary there who had been there for many, many years. And uh, we we went around Istanbul especially, and we met up one day with a friend of this missionary's uh, who was a Muslim man. And he was a very friendly man. Uh, He took time to go around to various places in Istanbul with us. He spoke very good English. Uh, He had actually studied for some years at Yale University here in the United States, He was very well-educated and very smart, very friendly. Well, towards the end of our time together, uh, this Muslim man started talking about his uh, hopes or nerves uh, about the afterlife. Uh, That's just the way that the conversation went. We started talking about certainty regarding the final judgment, what's going to happen on that day, how a person can know where they're going when they die, so to speak whether or not they can have any assurance or certainty about their final destination and what that experience will be like. Uh, And he admitted, and I'll never forget this, he admitted sometimes he can't go to sleep at night. It keeps him up at night because he's not sure. In fact, he's he's very nervous when he thinks about it, whether Allah will accept him or not. He's just very unsure. He's, He's tried to do his best in his religious practices. He's more or less a devout Muslim, but he's just not sure that at the end of the day, at the end of it all, it will be enough for Allah, because with Allah, there's no knowing what he's going to do. He's very arbitrary and capricious. So this man said outright, I don't know whether my sins will be forgiven on the judgment day or not. So you just have to do your best and hope for the best. Do your best, and at the end of the day, you just have to hope it's enough. Well, that's not very hopeful, is it? It's not very satisfying. Certainly, there's no assurance of salvation to be found in that kind of religion. Well, this man's understanding of who God really is and on what basis a person can be declared righteous in God's sight now and forever, and therefore the certainty or the assurance that comes with that, his understanding of those things was drastically wrong. He didn't understand the gospel. So we had a good conversation with him, and uh, we encouraged him to trust in the Lord, trust in Christ. 
Well, you might be thinking this morning, you know, that's a great story, but I'm not a Muslim, or my family's not Muslim, or I don't really, I'm not really tempted to think of God in those kinds of ways. So maybe I'm not very much like this guy. I don't drastically get God wrong and the gospel wrong, and so maybe that's a great story for some people on our planet, but not really for me. But I actually think that many of us, or even all of us in the room, have tendencies to think of God like that, and to think of the gospel like that, and to come at God with a kind of bartering spirit. Sometimes we call this legalism, don't we? Where you barter with God in your own heart and mind, and you think, if I, if I go 10 yards up the field, you know, this is the first day of the NFL, right? Well, I guess technically it was Thursday, but all the major slate of games is today. So we'll use a football metaphor. If I go 10 yards up the field, God will hopefully do the rest or something like that. He'll do the other 90 for me. We come at God with this bartering spirit, very legalistic, as though God can be repaid or bartered with by our best efforts and our lifestyle. And of course, I think we would admit, many of us in the room, that we do struggle at times with assurance, even if we don't come at God with legalistic tendencies, we still do struggle sometimes, don't we, with wondering whether or not there actually is going to be condemnation on the judgment day for us. And so the answer uh, of the gospel that I hope to make very clear uh, this morning is that we can do nothing of ourselves to rid ourselves of our sin. We can do nothing before God to free ourselves from his righteous condemnation of us. And our only hope is something outside of us. And that in lies our assurance. Because at the end of the day, our assurance is not found in how wonderful you are. At the end of the day, our assurance of salvation is found in Christ alone. And this gets us into Romans 8, where we can see that we can, in fact, be assured of no condemnation because of being in Christ. We will not be condemned by God if we are in Christ, is the main point of the passage today. Well, before we get into the the outline proper, I do want to just give you a running start. You can see the main point up on the screen, uh, there's, I know that's kind of wordy. As you take that in, I want to give you a three, four minute overview of Romans 1 through 7. So this is not, don't have much time to do this, but I do want to get a running start into Romans 8 here. This is a letter, of course, that was written by the Apostle Paul, I think on his third missionary journey. So we're in the mid-50s AD. He writes it to the church at Rome and he had never been there, as far as I know. He, had never, he, he did not plant this church. And he writes Romans to introduce himself then and his gospel, the gospel that he preaches to this community of Christians. And he wants them to know then a few basic things. He has to establish these things if they're going to get his gospel right. For instance, they have to know that everyone is a sinner. It's point number one. Everyone is a sinner. They have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, of course, is what Romans 3.23 says. And everyone there is everyone without exception. There is no one who is without excuse. That's a catchphrase in Romans 1 and 2. It's both Jews and Gentiles that are under sin, which is a phrase that Paul uses in Romans 3. 
I don't know if you ever saw the Lord of the Rings movies, but in the last of those movies, there's this final battle that's taking place as Frodo and Sam are inching their way towards Sauron and, uh, and uh, in, in, in the land of Mordor and the fires of Mount Doom and all that sort of thing. There's this one scene where Aragorn, who is the king, of course, is, uh, he is fighting at the gates of Mordor and, 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 the, and the hordes of Mordor are just surrounding the army. Do you know, if you've seen the movie, you probably remember this scene. And there's just no hope for Aragorn and, and his small group of people. And there's even one part of the scene where he is literally lying down on his back and this like rock troll thing, I don't even quite know what it is, is on top of him. The rock troll's foot is on him and the rock troll has like this massive I don't remember what kind of weapon it was. We'll call it a, like a war hammer or something like that. It looks really bad for Aragorn. And nothing that Aragorn do, he's like feebly trying to step at the foot of the rock troll, but it's not really working. I think that's what Paul means when he says people are under sin. Sin there is being personified as this kind of nasty rock troll thing. And no matter how hard you try, you can't get out from under it. So you're under sin. And no matter what, this thing is on top of you and you cannot throw it off, even if you live the very best life you know how to live. Sin with a capital S, so to speak. And, and, and of course, the sin is uh, owing to the choices that we make. But Paul goes further than this. Sin is not only things that we do, but the reason we so choose to sin is because we are sinners, It's not an accident that we sin and are under sin's power, but it's who we are when we come into the world. You all know this if you've been parents. None of us have ever had to teach our children to sin. They just know how to do it when they come in the world, don't they? It's within them. That's how we're all coming into the world. So we're sinners by choice, but we're also sinners by nature, aren't we? Paul makes much of this actually in Romans 5 when he links us with our father Adam whose original sin in Genesis 3 we have a share in. Both the guilt and in its effects, namely death. So Paul labors to show early on in Romans that we have this intrinsic, deep-rooted predisposition to sin. And I think a good word for that is depravity. It's like it's hardwired into our program. The second thing that Paul wants his labors to show is that the wages of that sin is then death. If you do a word study of the word death in Romans, it actually only occurs one time in the first four chapters. Does that that strike you? It's not until sin is established early that then he says the outcome of sin is death. Death. The wages of sin is death. So most of the instances of the word death in Romans isn't actually Romans 5, 6, and 7. Oh, if you read those chapters, Paul says again and again, Romans 6, 16, sin leads to death. Romans 6, 21, the end of sin is death. Romans 7, 5, our sinful passions aroused by the law were at work in our members to bear fruit for death. Romans 7, 13, sin produces death. You get the idea. Sin brings death. That's the outcome. Death there, I think, is akin to our word in Romans 8, 1, condemnation. The third thing that Paul labors to show in Romans 1 to 7 is that there's hope 
because God freely gives us the gift of his own righteousness, which we receive by faith alone. Romans 3, 21 to 26 especially states this clearly. The story of Abraham becomes crucial here in Romans chapter 4, where Abraham is declared to be in the right before God by faith alone prior to his circumcision. Prior to anything he had done to please God, God declares him righteous by faith alone. And then fourthly, and uh, this is the last thing I'll say in terms of overviewing Romans thus far, the effects of God's free gift of righteousness for us is peace with God, access into God's presence. There's a hope for the future resurrection. I think in a word, the benefits of having God's righteousness for us by faith is eternal life. That's the free gift that God gives us. So with that, by the time we get to Romans 8, there's been a lot of water under the proverbial bridge. And Paul has already shown in large part what the gospel is. Sin, death, righteousness, eternal life. Those four basic uh, themes. And I take it that Romans 8 brings all of Romans 1 through 7 to a rhetorical climax where Paul then brings home the assurance and the certainty we have because of the gospel of the righteousness of God that brings us eternal life. Does that make sense? This is a The rhetorical climax of Romans thus far. It's not an accident that some of you, Romans 8 is your favorite chapter in the Bible. All right, with that said, here's the main point. Again, you can see it on the screen. It's kind of wordy there. Sorry about that. There is no condemnation for those who belong to Jesus because Jesus inaugurated the new covenant through his sacrificial death for us so that we might fulfill the law. And you can see the verse numbers there. The first verse talks about no condemnation. The second verse starts to explain why, namely because he inaugurated the new covenant. The third verse digs even deeper and explains how did Jesus inaugurate the new covenant, namely through his sacrificial death for us. And then verse 4 is actually a hinge verse from this opening section of chapter 8 to really the rest of Romans 8, where Paul's going to labor to show that Actually, because we have the Spirit who comes from the new covenant's promise to us, we have new life. We're going to walk in newness of life, and so we're going to fulfill the law. All right. With that said, uh, let me uh, run through these points. The main point that I want you to come away with is verse 1. It says, There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. The phrase, in Christ Jesus, I have on the screen as those who belong to Jesus, because I think that puts it uh, accurately in a way that you can understand. The phrase, in Christ Jesus, simply refers to those who belong uh, to Jesus. And this verse states clearly, there is no condemnation for those who belong to Jesus. If you were awake for the last few minutes as I overviewed Romans, this is a staggering claim. There's no condemnation. This is a staggering claim that God would refrain from condemning you for your sin. The language of condemnation here derives from the image of a law court. So I want you to think of a law court, whatever that is coming into your mind as. And you have a judge and you have a defendant. And the judge is going to declare the defendant either guilty or not guilty 
and the effect of the verdict, guilty or not guilty, will then be, be brought out in terms of either punishment, if guilty, or not punishment and freedom, if not guilty. So the word condemnation, if that's the verdict, assumes there's guilt here and condemnation is sure to follow. Now the point then is that with God, who in that image of a law court is the divine judge, we are in God's heavenly courtroom in this verse as the defendants. And it's God the judge who declares no condemnation. This assumes then no guilt, no condemnation. No guilt, no condemnation. And those who hear this declaration of no condemnation, therefore, need not fear that God actually thinks of them as guilty. When he thinks of them, he thinks of their guilt. Because if he did, condemnation would be sure to follow. Those who hear this declaration of no condemnation need not fear punishment from God now or ever. Those who hear this, condemn, this verdict of no condemnation need never fear that God will change his mind on the verdict. As though God might rethink how heinous your sins really are and might say, you know, I know I said no condemnation, but I'm going to say, I'm going to change my mind because you just turned out to be a lot worse than I thought. Or some of us have an overestimation of the power of the devil to persuade God's mind. So if that's who you are, those who hear this declaration of no condemnation, you do not need to fear that the devil's accusations of you for your sin will ever change God's mind. No matter how often he says guilty, 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 condemnation, 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 that's not going to change the verdict of no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. There is no higher court in the galaxy or the universe that can be appealed to. God is the highest judge in all the world. God's court is the highest court in all the world. So you need not fear that this verdict of no condemnation will be appealed to a higher authority. In other words, this phrase, no condemnation, is God's final declaration. It's definitive and will never be changed. You can tell this is a nice assurance of salvation verse, isn't it? No condemnation now or ever. And I want to clarify, you know, the word is no condemnation. It's not as though there's a little bit of condemnation and mostly forgiveness. There's no condemnation. In fact, the very first word in the Greek sentence here is this word no. And that's a little bit abnormal from a syntactical perspective. I think Paul's point is, it's like, you know, when you write with caps, when you like text people and write in caps, it's like you're yelling at the person, hopefully in a friendly way. No condemnation, I think is what Paul's saying here. There's no chance that there will be even a little bit, a little hint of condemnation. It's not like God's like, you know what, we'll just call it good. I'll, I'll condemn you a little bit. And then let you, the rest go scot-free or something like that. No, no. It's completely no condemnation now or ever. And this is a staggering verdict. If you know yourself, and we do, 
We were rebels against God, weren't we? Just think about your own life. We were God's enemies. We constantly refused, Romans 1 is clear on this, to honor God as God, nor did we give him thanks. Our hatred of God was real and deep and rooted in that heart of depravity I mentioned just a moment ago. We wanted God gone once and for all. Just look at the crucifixion of Jesus. That's what we wanted. We did not commend ourselves to God as the good guys. Save us, God, because we are in the good guy camp. There's no one in the good guy camp, is there? Only Jesus. And so this is a staggering verdict that in God's heavenly courtroom, we would hear a verdict of no condemnation. And why would we hear this? Verse 1 says there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. There is the answer. It's just at this point in summary form, in Christ Jesus doesn't explain a whole lot about it. He's going to unpack this in verses 2 and 3. But at the very least, the answer is people who are in Christ Jesus will receive this verdict now and forever. If you are in Christ Jesus, this is Paul's way of saying that you belong to Jesus and therefore Jesus is your king All that Jesus is, all the benefits and blessings he brings, including himself, belong to you. Whatever he is, he is for you, if you are in him. Now, verse 2 starts to explain what it is that Jesus did to free us from condemnation. I want you to look in verse 2 just for a moment. I'm going to point out a few little phrases or words Notice the first word in verse 2 is the word for. Do you see that? At least it should be there. The word for means that Paul is getting ready to explain uh, what he just said in verse 1. So for is an, here's my explanation coming. Uh, Another thing in verse 2 is, do you see the phrase in the middle of the verse, in Christ Jesus? So you have the word for, okay, I'm going to explain it. And then in the middle of the verse, it says, in Christ Jesus, the law has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. That phrase in Christ Jesus links with the in Christ Jesus in verse one. Is everyone together on that? He says in verse one, no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus. And then he says, use the same phrase again in verse two because he's unpacking what he said in verse one. So this is something that Jesus did in verse two for us. And he's clarifying what he means by the phrase in Christ Jesus. And then finally, notice the word freedom, or actually it's the the verb set you free in verse 2. Do you see that? The freedom, I take it in verse 2, must be freedom from condemnation in verse 1. That's how I read verse 2. It's it's, it's unpacking verse 1 along these lines. How is it that those who are in Christ are free from condemnation? This is how it happened, is the way verse 2 reads. So with that said, Point number two is on the screen there for you because Jesus inaugurated the new covenant. Inaugurated is a fancy word for he began it. He got it up and running, this new covenant. And the word new covenant there is simply a new covenant relationship uh, that God established with his people when Jesus arrived on the scene. The prophets of Israel had hoped for this type of relationship and finally it happened. Verse two says, The law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. 
there's a, there's a bit of a debate on what the word law in verse 2 refers to. Uh, I, I'm not going to spend very long here, see if you can track with me. I'll give you a few basic options. Uh, my, mine will be the last one. Um, I'll say up front, it's probable to me that in the verse, the law of sin and death refers to the law of Moses or the law covenant of Moses. And you might say, wow, that's a real downer. Paul's calling the law of Moses the law of sin and death. That sounds really bad, Paul. Well, Romans 7 actually makes much of the goodness of the law of Moses because it came from God. And yet, it really was the law of sin and death. The words sin and death are all over Romans 7. Why is it the law of sin and death? Because even though the law of Moses was intrinsically good because it was from God, it wasn't powerful enough to overcome the real rock troll, remember that image, of sin. Sin was stronger than than anything in the old covenant uh, or the law of Moses time period. And so although it was good, it was used or abused by sin. So I think that that's likely the second instance of the word law. He's saying we were freed from the law covenant of Moses, from the old covenant. Well, then what does the first word law refer to? Here are some options. Some think the word law refers actually to the law of Moses both times. Viewed from two perspectives. So the law rightly appropriated versus the law misappropriated, but it's the same law. Now, the argument here is that while Paul often refers to the law of Moses with the word law, so probably he means the law of Moses in both cases here. But if you know Paul, I seriously doubt that this is a right reading of Paul. Paul nowhere else thinks the law of Moses, even rightly appropriated, can free you from condemnation. That would seem to fly directly in the face of what Paul just said in Romans chapter 7. That even though the law was good, it could not bring life. Another option, and this one is the majority view. I should say that. It's not my view. But you should know this is the majority view. So if I'm wrong, this is probably right. Many commentators of Romans argue that the law means principle or rule or power. Something like that. On account of the fact that Paul would, so the argument goes, never say that the law of the spirit of life sets you free. He would never say that the law sets anyone free. He would say the spirit sets you free. He wouldn't say the law sets you free. That's, that's a strong argument. Well, certainly the Holy Spirit does set us free. And I am um, always a little bit cautious to go against majority views, but I'm inclined to think that the word law here actually refers to a law covenant both cases, but not the same law covenant. I think the first use of the word is the new covenant, and the second use of the word is the old covenant. And the reason I think this is probable is because Paul can sometimes refer to the new covenant with the word law. He calls it the law of Christ in 1 Corinthians 9, Galatians 6, uh, which sounds a whole lot like the law of the spirit of life. And also, this is another debated text, Romans 2.15 talks about the work of the law written on the heart. I think that's in reference to the new covenant. And if I'm right, then already in Romans, Paul has called the new covenant a law. So if I'm right to think of this as the new covenant, here is the payoff. You can wake back up now if you fell asleep. I know that was really technical. I'm sorry for that. I think Paul is contrasting two eras here. 
He's contrasting the era of the new covenant, which the prophets of Israel longed for, and the era of the old covenant, which was characterized by sin and death. And so verse 2 is a salvation historical verse. Because Jesus has come, the new era has dawned. And it's the new covenant or the new law covenant. Of course, the new covenant promised the spirit of life. The spirit who gives life ultimately. They promised the final forgiveness of sins. The prophets of Israel said when the new covenant arrives, there's going to be a final sacrifice that deals definitively with our sins and the coming of the spirit would be clear to all. And I think this is what Paul is saying in Romans 8, 1 and 2. Jesus has come and with him the new covenant era has arrived. God has a new covenant relationship with his people, which means if you belong to the Lord, you have the Holy Spirit within you. Your sins are completely and finally forgiven. You do not need to offer goats for your sins. This is a new covenant relationship. It's the law of the spirit of life. And it has therefore, now that Christ has come, set us free from the old era, which was characterized, albeit the law of Moses was good, it was still characterized by sin and death. So verse 2 answers the question, why would God declare no condemnation of people who are clearly his enemies because of the new covenant? The new covenant's arrival in Christ Jesus Because because of his work for you, he brings you into a right relationship with God. He's in that heavenly courtroom. And when the accusation of your guilt and your condemnation comes, the answer of no condemnation is based on what he has done for you. That is the meaning of verse 2. You have been set free from condemnation because he has set you free in giving you this new covenant relationship with God. That leads us to verse 3, which is the third point. How did Jesus do this? What was it about his life and death and resurrection that inaugurated the new covenant? And the answer is, verse 3, it was through Jesus' sacrificial death for us. We can say more about the gospel than what verse 3 says, but verse 3 highlights the core of the gospel, which is the crucifixion of Jesus. The word cross does not occur in verse 3, but I think it's all over verse 3, and I hope to show you uh, why I think that. Verse 3 says, For God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do, by sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, He condemned sin in the flesh. One way to say that verse, another way to say it, is that God sent his son to die as a sin offering for us in order that he might condemn our sin in the flesh of Jesus and free us, therefore, from its condemnation. You know, the first part of verse 3, we don't really need to talk much about, frankly, because we've already mentioned the inability of the law. Do you see verse 3 talks about that one more time? God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do. So the law is seen as impotent, weak sauce. The law can't overcome sin. It can't overcome death. But verse 3 functions as a contrast with that inability to highlight the ability of God. 
the ability of God to do what it couldn't do. And what he did was he sent his son and condemned sin in the flesh of Jesus. I want to highlight uh, three things about this verse. So these, I don't have this on the screen for you, but if you're taking notes, these are my uh, sub points here under, under the big point. Uh, three, three things about this verse that I think teaches us a lot about God's power to free us from condemnation. Now, the first thing is that freedom from condemnation was accomplished by our triune God. Our triune God is a fancy word of saying, we believe in the Trinity. This is the name of our church after all, is it not? <laughs> we are Trinitarians, uh, Trinitarian monotheists at this church. We don't believe in three gods or three-headed monster or anything like that. But we do believe, with Christians through the ages, in the Trinity or the triune God. And I think the Trinity is so clearly on display in verses 2 and 3. So let's start in verse 3 here, where it says, God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do by sending his own son. Do you see that language? It's clear in this verse that God, the word God, refers to the Father... Because he has a son. And I think the unique identity of the son is seen in the phrase, his own son. You see that? It's, it's this unique identity that Jesus has as the eternal son of God. And, and his father, of course, that is an eternal relationship. Of course, we know the, uh, the name God the Son we call him Jesus in the incarnation. He comes to us as our Messiah. And it is then in him that we receive the Holy Spirit, who is mentioned in verse 2. I didn't say a whole lot about the Holy Spirit in verse 2, but I want to mention now, notice he is called the Spirit of life, back up in verse 2. The point is, you see in these two verses, the Father, the Son, and the Spirit working together for us and for our salvation. Sometimes people can misrepresent the Trinity and specifically the crucifixion along these lines. Sometimes they can say, the father didn't want to save you. He's like this grumpy old man. And Jesus said, wait, I want to save people. Please, please let me save people. And the, fa the father finally gives in to that. He's like, all right, I guess I'll save some. Fine. That sort of thing. Sometimes, surely none of us would think that, but if we do, let's stop thinking along those lines because this is a really clear passage that Jesus doesn't have to twist the Father's arm because of the language of sending. Do you see it? God, the verse says, sent his own son. I think the willingness of the Trinity is on clear display here. And of course, the love of our triune God for us is on clear display the Father sent the Son. The Son comes willingly to die for us in our place in the incarnation. And then the Holy Spirit is the, is the one who gives us life in the application of that accomplished work of the Son. In other words, I don't want you to think of the Trinity as doing their own thing. We're just kind of like off doing our own thing in, se uh, 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 in, in, in a separation, so to speak. But rather, they are working together. They are inseparable in their work and their operation. So I think 
The first point to note here is that when you think of that verdict, no condemnation, that is a product of the work the triune God accomplished for you. I mean, if God is for us, and we mean the triune God, then who can be against us? Another thing we see in this verse, this is the second sub-bullet point, is that freedom from condemnation here owes entirely to the grace of God. Freedom from condemnation owes entirely to the grace of God. It's clear with the sending language that it was the initiative of God. It was God's initiative to save. We didn't beg God to send his son. And God's finally like, all right, I'll do it. Rather, he loved us first, didn't he? So clearly in this passage. Romans 5 says, when we were enemies, Christ died for us. We didn't buddy up with God in order to twist his arm to do this for us. Rather, the initiative and the gracious and prior act is God's. To use the image of a law court again, I'm not a lawyer, you should know, but I think a plea bargain, do you know what a plea bargain is? I think I know what a plea bargain is. Um, This is not a plea bargain, right? A plea bargain occurs uh, when someone... Well, both parties come together, whether uh, uh, during or maybe uh, before or after uh, 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 the law court, and, and, and basically say, look, I'll agree to drop some of the charges if you do such and such. That's, 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 a, that's a plea bargain, right? This is not a plea bargain. We did not come to God and say, hey, God, I know there's a laundry list of sins I have. We got to make a deal. We got to strike a deal, a plea bargain. Right, we're going to plead guilty if you let us go a little bit scot-free, that sort of thing. This is not the way it worked at all. We were the enemies of God, and God first came to us. He came to us because of his great love for us, and he redeemed us from our sin. The third point I want to make here is that freedom from condemnation results from Jesus' substitutionary sacrifice on the cross for us. And this is really the point I'm getting at on the screen. Jesus' death was not an accident, was it? It was a planned event. And the meaning of the event is it was a sacrificial death. And it was substitutionary in that he died in our place. And I get this because of three phrases in verse 3. I'm going to run through these, but I just want to highlight them for you. Notice verse 3. There's one phrase that says, in the likeness of sinful flesh. So God sent his own son in the likeness, it says, of sinful flesh. The second phrase is the next one, and for sin, which I think should be translated as as a sin offering. And then the third phrase, he condemned sin in the flesh. In all three of those phrases, Paul cannot stop talking about sin. Did you see that? He uses the same noun three times. He says, in the likeness of the sinful flesh, it's really the flesh of sin, and then for sin, and he condemned sin. I'll I'll, I'll tell you another quick story. There was a woman, she was a middle-aged woman who came into my office uh, at Grand Canyon University off the streets. She wasn't part of our university at all. This was some months ago. She wandered in off the street. She had been an Olympic athlete decades prior um, in her teens and 20s, and uh, really had found her identity uh, as an Olympic athlete, had given her life to that, had found her joy in that. Once her time as an Olympic athlete was through, uh, over, she really struggled with who she was. 
Her identity was in great doubt. She struggled with meaning and a purpose in life. And she really struggled with depression. And even when he, she walked into my office, that was her demeanor. She was just a depressed lady with no sense of what, why she existed, what she was meant to do, that sort of thing. And I shared the gospel with her, talked about God and her sin and salvation in Christ and urged her to trust in the Lord. And it was at the point when I started talking about sin that she, she became very uncomfortable. It was fascinating to watch. She became very uncomfortable. And she even said, can we please not talk about sin? That's so depressing. It's just... It's just not very uplifting to talk about sin. And I'm, and I'm thinking to myself, Paul does not share your views, right? In verse 3, he's talking about sin three times in one verse. Good night, Paul. You're like obsessed with this idea of sin. And that just made her even more depressed to think about, well, she's a sinner and that sort of thing. And my friends, I want to say to you, perhaps you fall into that same sort of boat. Let's just not talk about this. It doesn't make me feel very good. And I want to press... I think that's what Paul would say is that what she did not realize is it's not until we start talking about sin and look at it square in the face that then we can find hope and freedom from it. We must talk about it in order to understand what redemption even is. If we don't talk about the rock troll on top of me, something's wrong. I'm not, a very, I'm not really helping you. Do you see my point? You're not going to understand what freedom is. And hope, you're not going to understand why Jesus had to die unless you talk about sin. And Paul is all over this topic of sin in verse 3. And why so? The answer is because Jesus died as a substitutionary sacrifice for our sins. In a nutshell, I think that's what this means. Paul doesn't call Jesus a sinner in verse 3, but he comes awful close. Did you see that? He, God sent the Son in the likeness of sinful flesh. Ooh, that's close, right? It's almost like he said he became sinful flesh. In 2 Corinthians 5.21, of course, God made him who knew no sin. Do you remember that? To be sin? There's another really close text. It's very clear Paul does not think that Jesus was a sinner. And even if you were here last week, Pastor Josh preached on Hebrews 4, which says he was tempted in every way but didn't sin, right? Very clearly so. Jesus was not a sinner. But Paul is laboring here to show the close identity of Jesus with sinful flesh. In other words, if you don't understand that he came to identify with sinful flesh, then you've missed the whole point of his coming and being sent by the Father. He came in the likeness, I think that word means closely identified with, sinful flesh, so that through his incarnation and ultimately climaxing in his crucifixion, that moment when he identifies so clearly with sinful flesh, he might free us from its power and penalty. Of course, if you remember, he's hanging on the cross, and by all accounts, it's the likeness of sinful flesh, isn't it? He's got two criminals on either side of him. He's got people mocking him, thinking, well, that's a really bad dude hanging on the cross. He's even, when he's opening his mouth, saying things like, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It's kind of like what a, maybe someone in, identified with sinful flesh would say. So why, why? What's the meaning of this identification? And I think it's in the phrase, for sin, which in your, if you're using the English Standard Version Bible, it's for sin. Uh, if you look in at least 
It is in the Pew Bible. I think it's true for all your ESVs and maybe other translations as well. There's a little footnote. Do you see that footnote? In the Pew Bible, it's a number three. If you look at that footnote, uh, 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 on the bottom of the same page, down on the number three there, it says, or, and as a sin offering. Do you see that? Just helping you to read your Bibles here. Read your footnotes. What your Bible translation editors are telling you is this phrase, for sin, can also or either be translated as that or as a sin offering. That's what they're telling you. And that's very helpful for them. Thank the Lord for such clarity and honesty with your Bible translation committees, right? Well, I think, I'm pretty convinced of this, that it should be translated as a sin offering. And the reason why I say that is because this particular Greek phrase that's underlying the translation for sin or sin offering is so often used to uh, 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 translate the sin offering texts in the Old Testament. So the Septuagint is the Greek translation of the Old Testament. You know, the Old Testament's in Hebrew, but it was translated very early on. And, 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 the, and the, the sin offering texts in the Old Testament were often translated into Greek using this phrase. Do you follow me? Do you think Paul knows that? I think so. The question could be pressed, do, do the Roman Christians know that? Maybe, right? I actually think probably so. Whether or not they would, I think Paul intends to say Jesus' death was a sin offering. It was not a meaningless, random chance of evil, chance event of, of evil in the world, but his death was a sin offering. And of course, in the Old Testament, this was an animal. Go back and read Leviticus 4 and 6, I believe it is, where an animal was sacrificed in the place of the worshiper. And the focus of the sin offering especially was to take away, you guessed it, condemnation or punishment. So there was a guilt offering, but there was also a sin offering. The sin offering was dealing with the effects of the guilt, namely punishment or sin or condemnation. And so Jesus' death on the cross is a sin offering. It takes upon himself the punishment or the condemnation that you and I deserve. And this is really clear in the next phrase where it says God condemned sin in the flesh. In whose flesh? I think it's clearly Jesus' flesh. He's already in the likeness of sinful flesh. His death is a sin offering. So it's in his flesh that God condemns your sin and my sin. That's why it's getting dark at midday on Good Friday. This is why he's calling out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? These indications like an earthquake and such. It's clearly the case that Jesus is bearing the brunt of of condemnation for sin, but not his own. So why are we free from our sin? Why are we free from from the verdict of condemnation? The answer isn't because God just wised up and decided enough with his condemnation business, not going to condemn anybody anymore. We'll call that a previous thing that I used to do, but not anymore. Rather, did you see the word condemned in this verse? The reason there's no condemnation in verse 1 is because he did condemn sin in the flesh of Jesus. That leads us to the fourth and final point. I almost have nothing to say about this because this is really a, a verse that leads us into the rest of Romans 8, which, thank the Lord, we're not covering today. So let me just say a word about this. Verse 4 is, is such an encouraging verse uh, because it shows the purpose of all of this new covenant inaugurating sacrificial death of Jesus is to bring us freedom from condemnation and freedom for new living, freedom for obedience. 
So the righteous requirement, it says, of the law in verse 4 might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh but according to the spirit. I think the righteous requirement language is merely the summary of what the law required, which is summarized in the love command, love of God and love of neighbor. And, and Paul's point is saying, if you get the gospel right, you're freed from the law of Moses. Can you hear the irony coming? You're freed from the law of Moses, which was characterized by sin and death. And ironically, you're freed then to fulfill it. So there's the irony. That doesn't mean we're under the law covenant of Moses anymore. We're surely not. We're under the new covenant, aren't we? But when we come into a new covenant relationship with God, his spirit gives us the power and enlivens our spirits to please him. So we actually do fulfill the ethic, namely the love command of uh, the law covenant of Moses. When we follow Christ, we are freed then to walk in newness of life. Well, you can think more about that. I told you that was a pretty short point. Let me bring this to a close uh, with uh, a few applications. Uh, First of all, I I, want to say clearly, you must belong to Jesus. Whoever you are, wherever you are in life, you must belong to Jesus. You must be in Christ Jesus. Or else, everything that I have said today will not be a benefit to you. You are under the condemnation and justly so of God. I, 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 honestly, I can't impress that upon you hard enough. Come to Christ. Don't, don't think so highly of yourself that you can get the rock troll off from you. You can't. You are under its power and under its penalty. And there is only one, not yourself, who can free you from it. So forsake all efforts at pleasing God and doing a plea bargain with him, coming to him barter-like. Don't do that. Rather, humble yourself and renounce all efforts to earn that favor from God and call upon him as a merciful God. He is. He's not Allah who is capricious and arbitrary. He has promises of salvation that you can take to the bank. And so call upon him Trust him. Take him at his word. That There is, in fact, no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Another point I want to say, and this is now for all, all of us, uh, there, there are days that are just plain hard. We, we, we all go through hard days. And some of you have had hard weeks. We get in bad moods. Our boss yells at us. We get grouchy. Our favorite sports team loses on the first NFL game of the year. We get mopey, right? All these sorts of things. We, we get tired. We get busy. I mean, so most of us are just so busy that sometimes we just don't have enough time to enjoy life, enjoy anything in life. We get sick. We feel bad. The list goes on. Sometimes we just have hard days, some more than others. My point is, on days like that, it is tempting to think God's punishing me. Have you ever felt that? Don't raise your hand. <laughs> I think we've all felt that, right? I must have done something really wrong because today is a really hard day. God's punishing me. He's giving you a little dose of condemnation, a little bit of hell, so to speak, because of something bad that you did. Now, I do want to say actions have consequences. That's not what I'm debating. Nevertheless, none, and I mean by this, none of the hard things in life that you face If you are a Christian, is God paying you back for your sin? Never. Not once. 
Those hard days should be always interpreted through the prism of the gospel that there is no condemnation now or ever because our triune God has accomplished redemption for us in Christ. This is the way the rest of Romans 8 reads. If he did not spare his own son, the logic of the cross says, how will he not also along with him give us graciously all things? That's the logic of this uh, sermon today. So don't read those experiences through the prism of God's condemnation of you, even in small doses. But rather, your God, your triune God has done everything for you. Trust him. Take him at his word. Read it. Read those hard experiences as then his loving discipline for you, which is very different than his condemnation of you. And finally, I want to say, some of you deal severely sometimes with assurance of salvation questions. Uh, one of, this is one of the clearest passages that I know in the Bible that it, it just says so clearly there is no condemnation for you if you're in Christ Jesus. And so can you have assurance? I think the answer is clearly yes. Some of you do struggle with this, especially if you have a tender conscience or you're prone toward more introspection. But let me say a word of comfort to you. While it is true that the way we live our lives can and should corroborate and confirm our profession of faith, we walk not according to the flesh, but according to the spirit, right? Verse four. Still, our final ground of assurance is the death of Christ for us. I think that's so clear if you get Romans 8, 1 to 3 right. The reason there's no condemnation for us in Christ Jesus is because God condemned sin in the flesh of Jesus already. So the final ground, the final foundation for our assurance is that Jesus died for me. That's why. And it's true, certainly, that our sense of assurance may ebb and flow. You know this, I know this, depending on a lot of factors, including the way we live our lives. But your final and ultimate hope is that God's not going to condemn you on the judgment day because he already condemned your sin in full. In the flesh of Jesus. If you belong to Jesus, if you trust in him, here we do need to mention faith and repentance. If you repent of your sins and trust in Christ, you have no greater hope of assurance than you have already obtained. Because it's rooted not in yourself, but it's rooted in our faithful God and his promises of salvation. This is why Christians must never stop thinking of the gospel. Never stop talking about the gospel. The gospel's always relevant to us for a lot of reasons, and this is one of it. This is our lifeline, this kind of message today. This is the thing that founds our heart's contentment and joy. And so I want you today to find a fresh assurance of your salvation by remembering the gospel and your hope outside of yourself in what God has done for us in sending his son and condemning our sin in the flesh of Jesus. Let's pray together.